Okay, back to a little more normal lighting. What's funny is, while this is a better episode, this still is an episode that falls flat pretty hard, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. This one was put together by Brent Friedman uh, and Chris Black and Paul Brown. Usually, <laughs> usually, this isn't always true, when you see a large number of writers on a script like this, that's a bad sign. And, well, I do think that this episode did kind of suffer from it. At least we had Vahar in charge, Mike Vahar, who is a veteran uh, Trek director, and I've mentioned several times before. We start off with Degra. I love the idea that Degra's all upset about the technical and engineering realities of building a weapon that could destroy a planet. I suppose by the TNG era, it would be relatively easy to come up with a weapon that could destroy a planet with the tech they have there. But here, yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, they do successfully design this thing. You know, they did wipe out a huge chunk of Florida, so... <laughs> I also find it interesting, even in these early ones, you can see the aquatics are kind of uh, a balancing force. As in, well, there's five of them, right? Are there five of them? Oh my gosh. Hang on. Boop. One moment. Let me just check my notes here really quick. Yeah, I've got a slightly different setup now with the new uh, monitor. So I'll give you just a moment. There's five, right? Right? Okay, one, two, three, four, five. Yes, okay, there are five. I thought so. God, doubting myself. Back to black. Five. Now, what's the relevance of that? You can't have a tie. So someone has to be the balancer. Someone has to be the swing. And by all accounts, the aquatics seem to be it, because even though they tend to be more moderate than the more extremists, like, say, the insectoids and the reptilians, they also tend to push, and unlike, say, the mammalians and the arboreals. And so we see that they literally sit in the apex of the two, of the two sides, and that's probably how the council works. I wonder what kind of voting system they use. Yeah, I'm enough of a geek to think about that. What do you want from me? Anyways, so... We have an initial scene where T'Pol and Tucker are doing their thing, which actually wasn't in the original script. It was added later. You'll notice how this is just a recurring subplot, and will continue to be so for some time. What I find most amusing is that Tucker is bothered by the rumor mill. Now, what amuses me about that is twofold. First of all, the question automatically pops in my head, why? I mean, rumor mills are going to rumor mill, right? But on the other hand, no, I totally get it. Because people will just come up with random nonsensical stuff that is incredibly false. One time I had uh, someone disparaging me, nah, let's, let's call it what it is, someone being a toxic asshole, on uh, one of the comments on someone else's video actually about me. And that's not the part that bothered me. What bothered me is they kept insisting on how terrible my wife was. They were referring to my sister, for reference. And so you just look at that like, well, th that's wrong. <laughs> like, that's the part that bugged me. It's not the fact that they were spewing venom at me. It was the fact that they actually got their facts wrong. It's like, well, hang on, hang on. <laughs> if you're, if you're going to call me insults, at least get your facts straight, right? Anyways, <clears throat> so I can kind of see why this would bother Tucker. It's funny because he's probably, I could just picture him, being, no, it's nothing. It's just to help me sleep. Yeah, I bet it's to help you sleep. No, you don't understand. It's this connection between, it's very intimate. Yeah, I bet it's very intimate. No, and it would just bug the crap out of him, wouldn't it? My heart goes out to him because I would totally feel the same way. Oh, poor dude. Anyway, so they want Trillium D. I wonder how far it is to go back to the mine. I mean, they kind of cleared that mine out. They could just go back and rescue a few people if they want to and get some Trillium D and be good, right? 
Then again, they've gone a fur, they keep going further into the expanse, so that might be a decent ways back. And, well, they still don't have protection from the anomalies, so any distance is a bad thing. So, okay, fine, I get it. You want to synthesize Trillium D. Okay. This then leads to, um, this thing where it's like, you know, you were changed into another species. You're not going to re- be recovered overnight. Except they are and they do. Uh, this is the last reference ever to that virus or anything about it. So I hope you enjoyed that in enti- tiny, minuscule little snippet of continuity. I credit them for having continuity, but honestly, I mean, this is straight up there with Threshold. This is, this is one step better than Threshold. Because in Threshold, they turn into salamanders and people within the same episode. Here, they turn into the, the whatevers. And then back in two episodes. I mean, we're getting there. We're getting there. Baby steps. Baby steps. Then we go to the bazaar. We see the chemist. We see all the people. You know, they're trying to sell them pets slash food. I'm not even going to comment on that. And then we see the sex slaves. All right, real talk. You know what I would have loved, legitimately? If the Enterprise crew was like, huh, so th- so these are women that, that you sell. Yeah, yeah. They're slaves? Of course. My and He flat out calls them merchandise at one point. Fascinating, fascinating. I don't love it if Archer just pulled out his thing and shot the guy right there. Just right there on the spot. Looks at the woman. You're free to go. Does anybody know anything about the Zindi? <laughs> now, Archer wouldn't be able to pull off that kind of blasé thing. Maybe Paul could if she was there. Someone could. But, you know, nevertheless, I would have loved it if that was the take instead of, no, we're just going to leave this alone. Now, what's funny about that is he does then go ahead and try to defend her when she escapes because they're anti-slavery. But you'd think they would have done something prior to that. Whatever. Missed opportunity. Moving on. So then they trade the spices for the Trillium D formula. Something about that amuses me greatly. First of all, it's spice. It's one of the most common... Wars have been fought over this is not a lie or even an exaggeration. Spice has been immensely valuable through a huge period of human history. Even now, spice is still valuable. It's just a lot more common and easier to distribute. But it's still something that many, many people use on a daily basis. Like, just at homes, never mind restaurants or, you know, professional caterers or chefs or whatever, right? This is actually funny. Literally today, a package from my dad arrived, which has these custom-made spices that uh, is from a... Because he knows, you know, I'm I'm into cooking. You all know I'm into cooking. And um, he knows that, and so he's trying to encourage me to do that. And so he sends me these little packets of spice. And I'm like, oh, let's try these out. I need to figure out some way to get them onto potatoes. I haven't decided how I'm going to do that yet. I'm either going to fry it or mash it. But either way, this segue wasn't just to talk about the value of spice or to talk about my life again. No, the point here is those spices are kind of hard to come by. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't have a source of these spices anymore. Now, yes, they have some form of matter replication, but it's mentioned to be far, far, far lower tier than actual full-tier replicators, as in the TNG era. Even TOS didn't have that level of tech. So, what I'm saying is, these spices are actually legitimately very valuable. Not just because of their inherent value, which I just emphasized, but because of how hard it is to replace them. They're not going to find black pepper around here. Or cayenne. So... <clears throat> This then leads to uh, them getting the formula. Everything's cool. I want to give praise to Nikita Azure. 
uh, I looked up how to pronounce her name. She's actually been in a lot of television stuff. She does a surprisingly good job here. In fact, she does better than the person she acts off of most of the time, which is Bakula. Bakula actually is kind of pathetic in this episode. Now, he hasn't been great in the first two seasons. I keep waiting for Bakula to keep nailing it. He has moments. I've pointed these out as we go. But for the most part, he just comes across as someone who is told, act angry, and he just keeps doing that. And I've already kind of given my theories as to why that is. You know, the whole, I will torture you and kill you arc that isn't actually his arc. But he doesn't earn it, as opposed to her, who helps sell the character quite a bit. We get from her, in her relatively brief performance here, someone who has effectively been forced into this, and she doesn't want to do it to begin with, and then she finds out that these people aren't terrible, and so she wants to do it even less. And so she just wants to get this done and over with and go home and be done with it. And even then, she's not really fond of doing so. It's also the first chink, which I'll talk about in a minute. Nevertheless, she sells the role, Regine, and does a good job with it, like I said. This is also when sex as a weapon becomes a more or less literal thing. Now, you're probably expecting me to stand on circumstance and talk about how horrible this is uh, from an out-of-universe perspective. You know, Ugh. No, this is actually really well done. Maybe I'll take the really off of that. But this is still well done. She, seriously, watch the scene for a moment, or just remember it in your head. She walks into Archer's quarters, seductive, you know, uh, seduce, seduce, seduce. All the seduce, seduction beams are going there. And at first, it's just kind of like, okay. Yeah, like, I've never seen this before. Then she manages to get close enough to him and puts her hands on his head, and we start to see his organs and skull. And the music tilts a little bit, like goes just almost a little bit off key. And then it's just like, wait, what? And then she continues to scan him, and the music gets a little bit worse, and she gets closer and closer, and then jump cut. Anyways, what I was just trying to say is thank you, Captain. The music stops the moment the edit happens, the moment the jump cut happens. And she's now standing several feet away from him. And she's like, anyways, thank you. And then she leaves. That is horrifying. That is properly done horror. I mean, this is pretty much straight up the succubus thing, right? Everyone's like, ah, oh, succubi. <laughs> but no, no, succubi are terrifying, especially when they're written properly. So this succubi shows up and is, uh, I shouldn't call her a succubi. It's actually an insult, but, you know, she, she effectively follows the same tropes. But that jump cut is what really sells the scene, because the implication is that she effectively was able to scan and do whatever it is she needed to do to him, against his will, and then, okay, well, anyways, nothing happened, and he has no memory of it, and she just leaves. That's messed up. And that's, that's why I say it's well done. That's why I say it works. She then starts to pull this trick on Hoshi later, who is, of course, susceptible to it, as would, would happen to a succubus in general. And this then leads to things getting even more violent because she starts to, there's no nice way to put this, violate T'Pol. Now, T'Pol is able to resist, and she does. She doesn't successfully resist all the way, but she does partially resist, which makes the whole scene much more horrifying. This is, uh, this is a violation. I don't know what else to call this. But it is portrayed as not as a sexy thing or as a, oh, thing. This is portrayed as horror. This is a succubus attacking the crew. And Tucker managing to get in and try to figure out what the heck is going on and being attacked and calling security and Archer jumping in. 
pretty much this whole sequence works better than it has any right to. I was expecting something similar as, well, Violations back in TNG, or Man of the People back in TNG, or Nemesis back in TNG, or Subrosa back in TNG, or... Look, the point is, this worked better than it has any right to. I think the actress is at least partially responsible for that. Although Vihar is a good director and probably picked up on the horror vibes and was able to actually do something with it. Because a lot of that's down to the presentation. This then leads to security sucking, as per Starfleet norm. And then... Uh, this is exactly when the episode falls apart. Because I've actually been with it up until this point. But now we've got her, and now this is the point, normally, where you would try to turn her. You know, sympathize, get the succubus to sympathize with you. Show that you're not that horrible of a person, and she doesn't actually really want to do this. This is... The problem here is she has to do this alongside Archer. And as I already said, Bakula is not nailing it here. He, he There's a scene where she's actually like... You're not that horrible of a people. I don't want to harm you. Which he immediately follows by grabbing her and shaking her and tell me what you know. These scenes don't work. The scenes between the two of them. And they fall flat on almost everyone. It's mostly because it feels like literally more than one person wrote the scenes. Huh. That is how it feels. It feels like two two scenes that are separate scenes were smashed together and no effort was made to make the dialogue change to reflect that. What this could have been is the scene where Archer sees someone who is going through, well, the recurring arc we've noticed so far. I'm sure you've caught that. She actually says, I wrote it down word for word, I had no choice. It's a recurring theme for most of season three. I'm not going to go into all the details of it now, but this is probably the first time it really comes to the forefront. I had no choice. I didn't want to do this. I had to. What else did I, what else could I do? I'm lying. The first time it showed up was with the pirates, but it, it was just so under the hood that you could barely notice it there because, you know, it, it was really, really badly done. With Archer, again, that's just a recurring trend. So we're seeing this already as becoming a bit of a recurring motif for season three. Unearned, unearned. This then leads to the, the reptilians showing up and an insectoid. Now, what happens next is the same thing that happens in most Trek and fiction in general when you need to establish a new villain. The new villain just curb stomps. In some cases, this is ludicrous to the point of aggravating. Uh, in this case, it's not that bad. You know, I can think of much worse than this. But still, the whole time I'm thinking, ugh, come on. Because their guns barely hurt the reptilians, and the reptilians have the super cannon, and they have the grenade that nobody can react to because they're terrible, and they have suicide glands, and little ships that are stronger than theirs, and blah, blah, blah. They're better. Right? Typical threat of the week. The only thing that makes them different is the fact that they leave. Which brings me to my next question. Why? There is... I, I could not come up with a single reason for them to leave Enterprise alive after they left. They could have just turned around and destroyed the NX-01 right then and there. Bam. Why didn't they? Instead, they leave with their info to make their bioweapon. Now, you're probably thinking, well, they wanted to save the bioweapon. Okay. So... Destroy the NX-01, which you can do, and then take the bioweapon back. On the off chance you don't want to damage the weapon, send other ships. Take the two ships out and then send in with three more, and there you go. I have—I mean, we know why. They leave the NX-01 alive because they had to. But the problem is this really doesn't make any sense. This is why the fact that they're so strong is something that I feel was a misstep. You know what I would have done? I would have had them Zerg rush. 
to explain that very briefly, for those of you not aware of the concept, the Zerg rush is when you send tons and tons of weaker, smaller troops at something, and they die. They die in droves. But there's so many of them that they start to overwhelm their enemy. In other words, this would have fixed all the issues I have with this, because the reptilians charge in, and they die. But then another one charges in, and then he dies. But another one charges in. And, and the Enterprise crew are just mowing these guys down, but there's enough of them that they start to overwhelm them, push their way down to the brig, smash it open, drag her out. And as they're leaving, they manage to get one reptilian, and there's not that many left as they finally evacuate. So why do they leave? Because there's literally not that many reptilians left, because they spent so many to get through there. Further, make it so their ships are not inherently superior to the NX-01. They simply rely on the numbers of having more of them. Rather than two ships, maybe make it four. Maybe even have one of them destroyed in the initial conflict, you know, before they get boarded. And so this is more of a... So first of all, it makes it so that the villains are not typical, haha, we're better than you, which is always something that irritates me, especially in Trek. But second of all, it helps to explain why they flee. Because they effectively lost the battle. And it's entirely possible they would have lost the entire rest of the battle if they'd kept fighting. So they cut their losses, they take what they have, and they bail. Whatever. <laughs> Not the greatest of episodes. Bolstered by a good guest star and some interesting ideas and some good direction. And now we have... The bioweapon, and now we must construct a new weapon. And I love this. They're going to redirect resources towards both the Death Star 2.0, or whatever you want to call it. The weapon is actually what they call it. So they're going to redirect their resources towards the weapon, and now they're going to make a bio-agent to wipe out all life on Earth. Cute. That's cute. It's nice to know that within this horrifying and dangerous part of space that is effectively portrayed as lawless in almost every aspect, that these people have the resources and powerful economy and infrastructure necessary to have this kind of industrial capacity to do these two projects at the same time. I know, I know, they're different types of projects, but I want you to think for a moment, even if you engineer a virus that will wipe out a species, good freaking luck, by the way, but let's say you do it. Distribution. That's an engineering problem. So, of course, just a couple episodes ago, we had an episode, a, a super perfect mega virus that infected an entire planet and would instantly morph you into a freaking Charizard. So what the hell do I know? Uh, anyways, better episode than last time, or better episode than not, excuse me. I do hope you've enjoyed, and I will see you next time.